All right, we're back in the Gospel of John after a long break. It's been about a month or so. Uh, we're starting John 11, and we're, uh, we're coming to the end of the first half of John's Gospel. Right? first half is about chapters 1 through 12. It's often referred to as the Book of Signs. It's Jesus' public ministry. Um, and it's coming to um, an end. We finished chapter 10 uh, with really was the, the conclusion of his ministry. If you, you will, look up there. Chapter 10, verse uh, 40, he's been attempted to be stoned again by the leaders. They, they want him dead for claiming to be God. And he retreats to the place across the Jordan where John had been baptizing at first. That's Bethany across the Jordan. So his ministry begins in Bethany across the Jordan, and it ends there as well. It begins with the testimony of John, and it ends with the testimony of John. So this is really the bookends of his public ministry. It's, it's basically over. In other words, and chapters 11 through 12 are really transitions now into what's called the book of glory, Um, the book which is primarily focused on not his public ministry, his private ministry to his disciples, and then his his glory and his cross and, and resurrection. So these two chapters now, 11 and 12, are setting the stage. Public ministry is basically done, mass rejection, but he does have some faithful followers, um, faithful disciples, and those who are the ones we're going to see this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16 this morning of, uh, of John. It's a very important story. You know, chapter 11 is all about the raising of, of Lazarus from the dead. It's the sixth messianic sign that Jesus performs. And in these verses, verses 1 through 16, Jesus is preparing Mary and Martha and his disciples for this sign that he's about to do. And so I've titled it, Two Loving Preparations for the Raising of Lazarus. And in verses 1 through 6, Jesus prepares Mary and Martha for his impending sign. He first focuses on Mary and Martha. Look at verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. The story begins rather abruptly by just telling us a, a certain man was ill. Um, and then it goes on to identify him and his sisters. It's Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Now, this is the first time we've encountered this family in the Gospel of John. Um, but John's readers and those familiar with the other Gospels um, are no stranger to this family, that we, we know who these people are. Um, Bethany was en route to Jerusalem. It was about two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Coming from Jericho, you would pass through Bethany to come to Jerusalem. Um, it would have been a regular stop for Jesus. And Bethany had a family um, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, um, they had become genuine, devoted disciples of Christ. They probably hosted him in their home on a number of occasions. We, we know one in Luke chapter 10 where um, Martha's scurrying about, quite busy serving, and Mary's, Mary's sitting at his feet, and Lord gently rebukes Martha and commends Mary. And just a beautiful story. These were faithful disciples of Christ. There's another story about this family, uh, Mary in particular, contained in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. Um, John actually mentions it. Look at verse 2. 
It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Um, What's interesting is John is going to tell us that story in the next chapter, but he tells us it here because he expects us to be familiar with it, but also he wants us to get a glimpse into the love and devotion of this family for Christ. These are faithful, loving, beloved disciples. Um, They're not fringe disciples. They're not like the crowd that we've seen. These are true disciples. And these are the sisters of whom their brother, brother Lazarus, was ill. So now look at verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. I want to pull a few things out from this statement here. Jesus will begin by um, preparing them in response to this appeal. I don't want to sort of zoom into this appeal of theirs. First, I want you to notice that this request differs greatly from the request of so many in this gospel for Jesus' miracles. Chapter 4, the man whose son was ill on the point of death in Capernaum, he, what does he tell Jesus? He says, come down now before my son dies, right? He, he, he demands it of Jesus almost. Or the crowd in chapter 6 that comes and, and, and hounds Jesus for more bread, more bread, right? That's not what they do here. They're not demanding a sign from Jesus before they believe. They're not requesting that Jesus simply be a means to a full belly, right? Like the chapter 6 people. They're already his beloved and devoted disciples. And Christ is their Lord and they, they love him for that. And this is why Jesus is going to respond to them in the way that he does. They're very different from the crowd. That's also why they make the request in the way they, they do. They, they love him, which, which leads to the next point. Number two, they make their appeal grounded in their confident assurance of Christ's love for them. Look what they, look what they say. Lord, he whom you love. Is ill. Love is a key word in these, these verses. It's going to come up several times. It's also the first time in the Gospel of John we come across the expression that Christ loved a disciple. That's going to come up repeatedly in the next verses, right? What does John call himself in this Gospel? The disciple whom Jesus loved. Chapter 13, Jesus is going to tell the disciples, greater commandment, a new commandment I give you. You love one another as I have loved you. It's the first time we read of a disciple being loved by Christ. The greatest display of the love of Christ was made at the, at the cross. In other words, as disciples of Christ, you have been profoundly loved by Christ. I want you to feel that. I want you to think about that. You need look no further than the cross. That's not all. If he loved you that decisively at the cross, then you can be sure that he continues today to still love you profoundly. Each of his disciples can say, each of you can say with the Apostle John, I am a disciple whom Jesus loved. That might sound sort of like an arrogant claim of John. I'm the disciple who who Jesus loved, right? It's not what he's saying. I think it's filled with profound humility 
in gratitude. I'm the one who's been loved by Christ. And that's you. And that's me. And that is Lazarus. And while the, the, these disciples here have yet to know the full love of Christ that will take them to the cross, Mary and Martha are nevertheless confident in Christ's immense love towards them and towards Lazarus. And the point that I want to make here is that it is the foundation of their plea to Christ. They appeal to his love. They say, he whom you love is ill. They appeal to the fact that he has loved them. And so they look with assurance to his heart, which is still towards them. Is that how you pray? Do you pray like that? Is that how you make appeals to the Father in Jesus' name? Or do you do so with hesitancy, as though God is unconcerned? Or as though you need to coerce him or convince him to pay attention to you? Or do you appeal to his great love for you, which was put on display at the cross? Romans 8.28, I mean, I'm sorry, not 8.28, that's a popular verse. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right? So if he did not spare the best, he will not spare the rest. He has loved you. And if he loved you to that extent, he will continue. So do you pray like that? Do you pray Lord, my brother or sister in this class is ill. They have a difficult marriage. They, 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 they've lost their job. They're in need. Lord, the one whom you love, do you appeal to his love, confident that he will hear? That's how these sisters appeal to Christ. Listen to John Calvin here. We ought also to observe that from Christ's love, they are led to entertain a confident hope of obtaining assistance. He whom thou lovest. And this is the invariable rule of praying aright. For where the love of God is, their deliverance is certain and at hand because God cannot forsake whom he loveth. He whom you love is ill. That leads to the third point I want to make in their request here. When you have this kind of confidence in his love for you, it shapes your requests. Look what they say. He whom you love is ill. Notice they don't even make a formal request of Christ, right? They don't tell him what to do. They don't tell him what he should do in response. They make no demands. They simply send to him and appeal to his love and make them aware of the condition of their brother. And I think certainly they expected Jesus would respond with immediately coming and, and healing Lazarus, don't you? But we're going to say that wasn't the case. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't make requests from the Lord. We should. It just means that when you are confident of his love, your requests are molded into such a kind as this. It leaves the ball in his court. Leon Morris said they took... They look to him for aid without specifying ways and means. When we pray, we're not coaching God. We're not giving God suggestions. We're not helping him out, figure out how the best way to resolve this is. Why? Because we're confident he loves us. And that's what they do here. He whom you love is ill. 
And this is just what Jesus does. The most loving thing. Look at the next verse four. He prepares them now by his explanation of God's purposes. Look what he says. Verse four. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness is not unto death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Who is Jesus speaking to here? We're not told, but I think it's to the messengers who is going to take this word back to Mary and Martha. And I think that because of this little phrase, the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. Now flip over to verse 40. Let's talk with Martha. He's get, he told him, open the cave. She's wondering, what are you doing? And he said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Well, when did he say that? Well, I think he said it to the messengers here who was going to take the message back to them. So in other words, I think all of this he's saying right now is to prepare Mary and Martha for what he's going to do. So look at verse 40. I'm sorry, we looked at that. Look at verse 4 again. This illness is not unto death. Now, when Mary and Martha received that word, and then when Lazarus probably soon after died, they certainly were bewildered. Was Jesus mistaken? Was he unconcerned? Was he cold and callous? Did he just not want to come? Why did he say this illness is not unto death? Jesus is in full control here. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows what he's going to do. He means something much more profound. He means that Lazarus' illness is not ultimately unto death. Yes, Lazarus is going to die. He is. But that is not the end goal. Ultimately, it does not end in death. Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. But look what he says next. This illness is not unto death. That's not the end goal. And we would expect him to say, but I'm going to raise him from the dead, right? Or, but he's going to live. But that's not what he says. Look what he says. This illness is not unto death, but it is for the glory of God. So that the son of God may be glorified through it. What does he mean by the glory of God? By the glory of God, I think he means the display of the character and person of God. That's what the glory of God often means. It's it's the person of God gone public, who he is on on display for, for, for man to see. The glory of God. According to John, God's glory has been put on maximum maximum exposure through the incarnation of Christ. The very being, character, attributes of God are most clearly revealed in his Son. And so that's why Jesus says what he does next is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Christ has come and done all that he has done for the glory of God. And the Father is devoted to the glory of Christ. There's a mutual devotion. Christ is after the Father's glory, revealing his person. And the Father is after the Son's glory, revealing his person. And so in this sign, Jesus is about to perform when he raises Lazarus from the dead, God's character and power are going to be put on public display and they're going to be done so through Christ. That's what he means. That is the end goal of this illness. 
This illness is not unto death. It's for this purpose. The glory of God through Christ. This is the second time we've encountered a truth, this truth, that a sickness, an illness, has been ordained by God, not as punishment for sin, but for the glory of God. Remember chapter 9, verse 3, the man born blind? It's not that he sinned or his parents, but so that the works of God might be revealed in him. And that's what is happening here. So this illness of Lazarus is not unto death. It's for the glory of God. So when Christ raises him from the dead, his glory as the son of God, who has the very power of God to raise the dead, might be put on public display. But there's another level going on here. How was Jesus ultimately glorified? It was where? In his cross, in his resurrection. And I think that's what he's saying, because when he goes to raise Lazarus from the dead, it's going to be the final straw. Um, It pushes the religious leaders over the edge. It seals Jesus' fate. When he does this, there's no turning back. Um, It will, his raising Lazarus, Lazarus from the dead will result in his crucifixion, which is his glorification. This illness is not unto death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it as he's crucified. So Jesus is saying the illness of Lazarus is not ultimately for death. It's for these two purposes. For the glory of God in Christ and the display of God's character in the Christ's cross work. Before we move on, let me ask you, could these words that Jesus just said, this illness is not to death, but for the glory of God, could that apply in any way to us? They do not apply in the same way, right? It doesn't mean that this illness any of us might have may result in death and Christ is going to immediately resurrect you, right, from the dead as he does Lazarus. That's obviously not the application. But if you think about it, It's just a timing issue, right? This illness, whether now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, does not lead to death for you. But your resurrection and the glory of God in Christ. So the whole sign is meant to demonstrate this reality that all who by faith In Christ, who are his beloved disciples, will likewise be raised by Christ just as he does to Lazarus. Look over at chapter 11, verse 25. We'll be here next week. Listen to what he says. Jesus says to to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. My friends, you will never die. (laughs) The end goal for believers is resurrection. The end goal for believers is the glory of Christ. That's double encouragement for us. You will never die. And when death comes knocking for each of us, whenever it does, and it will, Those who possess eternal life in Christ, death will not cause us to miss a nanosecond of life, of true life. And the resurrection power 
by the powerful word of Christ is coming for each and every one of you with just as much certainty as it came for Lazarus. You'll never die. And if that were not enough, we also have the comfort that all the suffering we experience, all the illness in this life, is unto the glory of God in Christ. And if you're a true believer, that is comfort. It's for the glory of God. Well, how so? It is sorrowful. It is grieving, right? What's interesting is that in this passage, Jesus wept, right? It's the verse every child loves to memorize. Jesus wept. He weeps. He sorrows. He mourns. He grieves. It is hard. And while it is sorrowful and grieving, while we mourn, we do so with a deep joy, knowing that all of this will one day redound to the glory of God in Christ, when with one word, Christ, by his powerful voice, calls us all to come out of the tomb to eternal life. That's the end goal. And when he does that, it will magnify him as the son of God so that all would honor the son just as they honor the father. Your illness, your suffering, everything in this life, ultimately your death, will not end in death, and it will be for the glory of Christ. There's comfort there. And so with those words, Jesus is preparing Mary and Martha for what he's about to do. But that's not all. Look at verse 5 through 6 now. He prepares them by his loving delay. Look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. They sent to Jesus appealing to his love. And now John comments to assure us that Jesus really did love them. They weren't mistaken. He loved them. They're his sheep. They were given to him by the father. He's come to die for them. He loves them greatly. But John tells us this because what follows seems to be completely the opposite from what we would expect. He said he loved them, therefore, he stayed two days longer. Now, what does that mean? He loved them, therefore, he did not go heal Lazarus. He let him die. What kind of love is that? Look at verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. He doesn't return to heal him. Because why? He loves him. He purposefully delays. He delays two days before he departs. Because after two days, Lazarus will then have died. He doesn't respond to the request of Mary and Martha in the way they expected his love to work out. In the way they thought his love would show itself. And it wasn't because he didn't love them. It's primarily because he loved them that he didn't do it the way they expected. So Lazarus would die and Jesus would show up four days later when his body's already decaying in the tomb. That's why he delays. He could have, by his sovereign power, kept Lazarus alive. He could have healed him from a distance. He's done that before and he doesn't. 
He could have gone with the messengers and at least spared them two days of mourning and gotten there on day two when Lazarus was dead. And he doesn't. And he doesn't, not because he's cold and callous, but because he loves them. But what is the connection? How is that loving Jesus? The connection between Christ's love and his delay is found when we realize that the revelation of the glory of Christ and the gift of a deeper faith and knowledge of Christ with greater clarity and deeper trust is the most loving thing Christ could ever do for you, his disciples. That's what he wants. The gift of the gospel is God. The gift of the gospel is is Christ. And for that end, he does what he does. For that end, he delays so that they would behold his glory. That is the most loving thing he could do for us. Had he come and healed Lazarus before he died, they would never have heard Lazarus come out. And my friends, these are precious truths here we, we must not neglect. We must never doubt the love of Christ when our prayers Your expectations are not answered in the way that we think they should be if Christ was loving, right? Christ is after something much greater and much more loving than I could ever expect. We must not evaluate his love through our experiences. It's the other way around. We evaluate our experiences through a confidence that he loved me. Number two, know that the loving name of Christ is always greater than we could determine our, on our own and he aims for a greater sight of his glory and a deepened faith in his person such as would not have come in another way. So don't evaluate your, your, his love through your circumstances but your circumstances through his love. Don't doubt his love and know what he's after. He's after your sight of his glory, that you would know him, trust him more, love him. And one day when he returns to resurrect you, all the glory will redound in his name. Listen to John Calvin again on this, this verse. We ought not to judge the love of God from the condition which we see before our eyes. When we have prayed to him, he often delays his assistance, either that he may increase still more our ardor in prayer or that he may exercise our patience and at the same time accustom us to obedience. Let believers then implore the assistance of God, but let them also learn to suspend their desires if he does not stretch out his hand for their assistance as soon as they think that necessity requires. For whatever may be his delay, he never sleeps and never forgets his people. good news brothers and sisters so we have just a couple minutes left let me fly through the next couple verses here verses 7 through 17 Jesus will now go on to prepare his disciples for his ominous return to Judea let's look at verse 7 then after this so after the two days have gone he stays two days And after these two days, he says to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Jesus knows Lazarus is dead now. It's happened. Now we're ready to go. 
He's ready to go back and perform the, the, the sign. The disciples aren't aware of this. They just know last time we were there, we were all about to be stoned to death. What are you doing? Why would we be going back? And so Jesus first in, in verses 7 through 10 teaches them that he is returning because of his devotion to the works of the Father. Look at verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. It's daytime. Jesus still has daylight of the father's purposes for him to work. He must work while he still has light, while he still has time. Darkness of death is coming. He must be about his father's work is what he's telling his disciples. Then he goes on in verses 11 through 16 here. Tell them that he's returning to raise Lazarus from, from the dead. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Sleep's a good thing. That's a good sign. He's sleeping, Lord. He'll recover. Probably spoken more out of fear than, than anything. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus died. And for that, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So, won't go through all these. He gives an enigmatic saying. He will awaken him from the sleep. It's encouragement. Death for a believer, Jesus is saying, is, is like sleep. He will arouse him from the dead just as easily as you arouse someone from sleep. He says, I rejoice that I was not there so that you would believe. So he's after the faith of Mary and Martha, and here he's after the faith of his disciples. He's not joyful in the death, but he's joyful in the faith it will produce. And then his settled resolve is his approaching death. Look at how it ends. Verse 16, Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Um, Thomas is probably speaking with cynicism and, and despair. He knows death is waiting. He's not interested in going and dying, but Christ is. Christ knows that when he does this sign, it will seal the deal. But he goes to raise his friend to life at the cost of his own life, which is exactly what he's come to do for you, to raise you to life at the cost of his own. You know, we got to go. Let me read to you a, a song as I was thinking through this passage, meditating on it. Um, some of these truths, you, you know this song. God moves in a mysterious way. How many know this, know this song? William Cowper. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up all his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread. They're big with mercy and will break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. 
Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. He's good. So brothers and sisters, go from here knowing his love. Return to the cross if you doubt it. If he has loved you that much, he loves you. You can rest assured, pray that way, appeal to his love. But don't doubt his love and analyze it through your circumstances. Do the opposite and trust him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. And I thank you that you continue to love us. Oh God, may these truths fill us with strength and boldness. May we love and long for the glory of Christ. Um, Open our eyes to see it more. May we love him. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Bring much comfort and joy and hope and rejoicing and delight and honor and glory to Christ through these truths. We love you, Lord, and commit our time into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Thank you for sticking around. Extra few minutes. uh, God be with you.